Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Shivaram Rajagopal, the Kester and Burns Professor at Columbia Business School. Professor Rajagopal is the author of a recent two-part article published in Forbes entitled, The SEC's Attempt to Write Generally Accepted Climate Principles. More recently, Professor Rajagopal published a third article in Forbes about the Securities Exchange Commission's climate disclosure proposal entitled, Why Do Critics Claim That the SEC Has Overreached With Climate Risk Disclosure? Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure. Professor, first of all, congratulations on reading and analyzing the Securities Exchange Commission's 500-plus treatise-slash-proposal mandating climate risk disclosures to public companies. As an initial question, putting yourself into the shoes of an investor, what do you see as the single most important provision in the proposal that will help investors in making investment or proxy voting decisions? Thanks, Jeff. So the, you know, I've joked before, it was like reading War and Peace, except War and Peace was more fun, the Tolstoy <laughs> treatise. But, but let's talk a little bit about the SEC proposal. What is the most important proposal? You know, you can talk about the details. It's mostly modeled on the TCFD proposal. But to me, I think the most important change, if any, is that a lot of these disclosures will now be brought in the 10K as part of uh, financial footnotes, subject to an audit, subject to internal control provisions. And that's a big deal because hopefully it makes it easier for the SEC to go enforce some of these things. You know, I've written paper after paper about the sorry state of greenwashing in a lot of these issues, you know, in the E and the S for sure. So to me, maybe this is a signal that the SEC is going to enforce things a bit more aggressively, especially in the ESG funds arena. You know, as as and also the the corporate professor. In your article, you state that climate reporting may be the third best way of focusing corporate minds on the climate problem. Can you explain that comment? And what, in your view, is the first and second best ways of focusing corporate America on climate change risk? The reason I made that uh, comment, Jeff, uh, and this relates to your earlier question. How many of us have read the IPCC report, which is like 3,000 pages and beyond? And uh, if you take that report seriously, because it's the consensus work of thousands of scientists, you know, the, the, the prognosis is pretty bleak. It's, it's, you know, we're probably going to breach that two degree centigrade limit quite easily. It requires a fair amount of mitigation, adaptation, uh, et cetera. So what is the first and the second best way? Well, it, it has to be some kind of regulation, much as we don't want to discuss regulation anymore in this country, uh, unless you make polluters pay somehow, either through a carbon tax or a carbon quota, which has to come from Congress, uh, it's pretty difficult to make progress. So to me, that is the first best way. The second best way, if any, might be you know some combination of uh, incentives, uh, and regulation, maybe we'll get innovation to help us get around these issues. Uh, there's, there's, there's been a bit of a green bubble, as you know, in, 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 that, in that area. So hopefully some Nirvana technology will come along 
uh, which will you know take off at scale. Scale being the big problem because that's the second best way. Reporting is probably a small fight in the larger scheme of things. Uh, that's why I made that comment. And the other issue that worries me is the state of the politics. And this is an area that you cannot discuss without getting into the politics. So, you know, Congress, if this is Congress's uh, responsibility, Congress doesn't seem to be able to get anything done, as I had written in my earlier piece. Even getting daylight savings to be permanent is kind of difficult for Congress to kind of pass, let alone something like a carbon tax. If it's the EPA's responsibility, you know, as you know, there are a couple of cases pending with the Supreme Court claiming that the EPA has overreached. So something like this probably doesn't have much of a chance with the EPA. Uh, we frankly cannot blame producers that much as well. You know, if, if you're an oil company, you're not selling drugs. You're basically selling oil because you and me consumers want oil. And we haven't given consumers a viable alternative to get out of oil. So who, if anyone, is responsible? is the question. And maybe the reporting fight is a small fight in the larger scheme of things. Uh, but maybe it's a necessary fight. You know, hopefully you know, a small win here might uh, convince others to take some of these issues a bit more seriously. Professor, your article notes that the SEC's economic analysis for the proposed rule cites numerous studies that claim ESG and emissions information moves stock markets and mandatory disclosure will likely improve liquidity and lower the cost of capital. You comment in your article that you have questions about several of the studies cited by the SEC and that the SEC regrettably does not cite dissenting studies. So can you identify and briefly discuss the single most important dissenting study that the SEC failed to cite in the proposal's economic analysis? So, so there's this accounting review paper, uh, Jeff, uh, which I'm guessing you're aware of, which claims that material ESG is priced. And a dissenting rebuttal just came out in the Journal of Financial Reporting, which uh, dissects that earlier study and doesn't quite uh, manage to find evidence consistent with the prior study. Uh, there are papers that claim that uh, scope one, scope two, scope three emissions are correlated with stock returns. So, it, you know, it turns out that the emissions numbers used by some of those papers uh, rely mostly on what the vendor estimates these numbers to be. So if you look at the state of disclosures, around 25 odd percent of the emissions numbers used in these studies are actually put out by the company. 75% or so are put out by vendors. And the results in those papers come from the portion of the emissions estimated by the vendors, which is kind of strange, right? If Amazon puts out a disclosure, that's not priced. But uh, say some vendors estimate of Amazon's emissions are priced. That's a bit, bit strange. Uh, I think it would help the SEC's cause if they were to just talk about both the dissenting and the uh, studies that advocate that these things are priced. I, for one, uh, am hard-pressed to show that you know, ESG information is systematically priced in returns. And frankly, there's a good economic reason for it not to be. You know, Think about emissions. These are effectively externalities imposed by companies on other stakeholders. If no one's making them pay for it, why would it be priced in anything? You know, why, why would it have cash flow implications? Why would it be associated with returns? So the economic story itself is 
quite you know shaky in my view so you know to, uh, i would urge your listeners to you know consume these studies uh, critically and carefully before taking investment decisions professor your article notes that footnote 620 of the proposal clarifies that if the independent accountant who audits the registrant's consolidated financial statements is also engaged to perform the greenhouse gas emissions attestation for the same filing the fees associated with the greenhouse gas emissions attestation would be considered audit related fees you comment in the article that you were hoping that the SEC could extract other concessions from the big four in return for this provision can you explain your comment well you know i've i've written about this quite a bit i'm kind of worried about uh the value an audit adds to a public company and uh, it's very hard for me as an outsider to figure out say the audit quality of uh, of of a uh, you know that that was put in by the assurance provider for a company so as you know i we get a one page report at best from the auditor yes nowadays we have uh, key audit matters which helps a little bit uh but there's a lot of nuance that's completely missing and lost you know what was looked at what estimates were uh, discussed and negotiated between the cfo and the auditor something even similar to say a credit rating report where you have a triple a or a triple b you know some nuances some more information would be really helpful uh so the audit report in general is a pretty bland piece of uh, you know it's a pretty bland document which becomes hard as a user for us to digest and consume on top of that there are several other things that really worry me you know why is carson block or some short seller with private information able to find fraud faster than an auditor with public information you know and we've just finished the study and i'll send a copy once we are done with this so we look at all these uh, shorts who come out and publicly say something is wrong with the company's account and what do the auditors do before and after these uh, allegations come out nothing it's virtually a flat line and what's more disturbing and we can talk about the study later if you wish is if the auditors do do something then it turns out that they lose market share so you know so so the so the point was that perhaps we can get the big four to show us a bit more maybe some kind of uh, secure data room where we can go look at their work papers uh, maybe uh, some more nuanced information about the audit in exchange perhaps for uh, more attestation work which is what the uh, sec rules have uh, effectively uh, given i would argue to the big four and it's not necessarily a bad thing because if you look at the current esg auditors by and large in my experience they are fairly small firms they rarely have the capital i think to survive even one lawsuit we rarely know the audit fees paid to the esg auditors which makes me worried that they have basically no bargaining power against a mega company how much primary work do they do so all these things will eventually get consolidated the esg auditors will eventually get uh, perhaps sucked into the big four uh, but but i i just wish this is a, this is a you know an ongoing negotiation between the SEC the big four and the investing public so hopefully this means that the big four will probably be amenable to sharing 
some more information about the quality of an audit with the investing public. Professor, you referenced page 26 of the proposal describing the large amount of assets under management supporting standardized climate reporting. Does it concern you that many, if not most, institutional investors currently appear to care far more about improving climate reporting than they do about improving financial accounting and reporting generally? Hugely. You know, I'm, a, I'm an accounting professor by trade. I worry every single day, is anybody reading the 10K? You know, we have 300 plus pages of information being put out in the K, in the proxy, and the sustainability report. Uh, you know, part of this, I'm guessing, is the ETFization of the world. You know, we're buying baskets of securities. We're not buying individual stocks. Maybe, except for the shorts and the activists, um, and a few accounting professors like me and my hapless students, you know, I, I wonder whether anybody goes through a K. Or a, or a sustainability report or a proxy statement word for word. So it's hugely concerning uh, to me. Uh, you know, uh, why exactly? I guess, you know, there are so many shortcuts on the street. People use EBITDA, multiples of EBITDA, multiples of earnings. Uh, and you would you would hope that there's arbitrageable information in the, in the footnotes, but a lot of these things require patient capital, which is the other concern. You know, a lot of the patient capital is probably simply passive. So do we have, you know, patient arbitrage-based capital is the question. That's the uh, customer base. So that's the constituency that's likely to exploit information and financial statements for, you know, making good trading decisions. Um, it is a worry. It's a huge worry. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out why or when, if ever, will we have you know, BlackRock with ten trillion and Vanguard with whatever nine trillion, and you know the you know Mark Carney's alliance and so many of these you know massive investors, PRI, etc. When 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 would we see uh, that kind of grassroots support for improvements in financial reporting? Maybe climate is more important than financial reporting, at least based on uh, <laughs> based on investor demand. Professor, in your most recent article about the SEC proposal, you discuss nine objections that critics of the proposal have raised. What do you see as the single most compelling criticism and, and why, despite the criticisms, you're a supporter of the SEC's proposal? The single most uh, compelling criticism, I think, is underestimating compliance costs. You know, uh, if I recall correctly, the SEC talks about compliance costs being in the region of seven, eight hundred thousand dollars or something. That looks rather small to me. It's probably going to be much bigger. And it sounds like a technical point, but you know, the, the courts don't seem to take to this very generously. So there have been at least a couple of cases where rules have been struck down because compliance costs were either underestimated or they were considered to be smaller. Um, sorry, let me restate that. Compliance costs were underestimated or the compliance costs were uh, far higher than the perceived social benefit. Now, going through a, a social cost benefit analysis is hugely complicated, I, I admit. Uh, and on top of that, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not as qualified to talk about whether, you know, the SEC is uh, overstepping its authority and so on. It doesn't look like that to me. 
these are risks that investors care about. Um, there's tremendous heterogeneity in the disclosures. I mean, that's why I wrote, people should probably pick 50 annual reports and spend an afternoon or two just going through them to try and understand what companies are telling you. If they commit to a net zero pledge, how are they going to get there? What are the disclosures? What are the dates? What are the mechanisms? You know, how much of uh, this relies on carbon offsets? Do I believe the offsets, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's all over the place. The, the disclosures are sometimes in the press releases, sometimes in the proxy, sometimes in the sustainability report, sometimes in the 10K, sometimes they contradict one another. So, you know, just an effort to standardize these disclosures in one place to give the SEC some enforcement muscle once it gets into the 10K, to me, would be a useful exercise. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Shivaram Rajagopal, the Kester and Burns Professor at Columbia Business School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.